impulse for literature comes from our need and desire to express what we know unconsciously, but we don't have the language to express. And so we have to create that language. And the creating leashes itself to our imagination. That's writer and spoken word performer David Murrah. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. David Murrah is an award-winning artist who moves from one genre to another with acrobatic ease. He began as a poet, but quickly added essays, memoir, and novels to his writing arsenal. While he moves comfortably from genre to genre, all of Murrah's work looks at racism, history, and sexuality, examining what it means to be Japanese-American. Furthering that exploration, Murrah has also created performance pieces, taking the stage himself, often as different incarnations of the Asian-American. Or sometimes he joins with African-American writer Alex Pate to create a dialogue between writers of color. When I spoke with David Murrah at a writers' conference in Washington, D.C., I wondered how his working relationship with Alex Pate began. We were friends, and Alex is a black writer, and I'm an Asian-American writer. And then all the events in L.A. surrounding the Rodney King beating and the subsequent decision which where the police were let off and then the violence that happened afterwards became a huge national event, right? And one of the key images out of that event were images of Koreans and African Americans in sometimes even open combat, right? And certainly there were tensions between Korean store owners and Korean Americans and and African Americans. And Alex and I decided that if we just sat up on stage and said, I'm a Japanese-American and an Asian-American, and he's an African-American and we're friends, that that would be an image which people hadn't seen before. So we did a whole show about our lives as men of color and about relationships between the Asian-American community and the African-American community. And it was both in terms of the larger, broad dialogue that we feel needed to happen, and then the sorts of conflicts that were happening between Asian Americans and African Americans, and then our own personal dialogue of becoming friends and getting to know each other and talking over issues of race. And we've continued to do that, and I've continued to do that in a number of different ways, talking with different writers of color about the issues of race. Something you examine is the issue of race, is, is your identity as a Japanese-American, Japanese-American history and culture, mm-hmm. and you do it in different venues. You do it in poetry. You do it in memoir. You do it in novels, mm-hmm. and you do it in performance pieces. Yes. Can you just talk about those different genres, and, and what are some of the challenges, and, and what are some of the overlaps between them? Well, I started out as a poet. And then I went to Japan. I got an, actually an NAA fellowship from the U.S.-Japan Friendship Commission to go to Japan and stay for a year. And I realized that if I waited for my experiences to distill into poetry, I would lose a lot of what was just happening to me 
as I was becoming acclimated to the culture, getting to meet Japanese people, and beginning to ask questions about my own identity in relationship to Japanese culture, my grandparents pass and my parents pass. And so also the American film critic of Japanese films, Donald Ritchie, said to me, you should keep a diary because things will be happening so fast to you. If you don't keep a diary, you'll lose it. So I ended up writing a memoir of that year. And, uh, and that's Turning Japanese. That's Turning Japanese Memoirs of a Sansei. And in it, I recount what happens during the year in Japan, but I also talk about issues of how being in Japan made me think of what it means to be Japanese-American, both in terms of culture and in terms of issues around race. And when I say culture, for one thing, my parents raised me in a very assimilated manner, and so I didn't know much about Japanese culture. And being in Japan, I realized I couldn't understand who my grandparents were unless I knew Japanese culture. And I needed to understand who my grandparents were to understand who my parents were. So I think I wrote the two memoirs because the issues that I was dealing with in terms of my identity, in terms of my relationship to Japanese-American history, were things that I hadn't seen written about, and especially in terms of my own generation, who was born after the war and who were not interned during World War II. As your parents were. As my parents were. And the part of the reason, the way I likened it, it too, is, is if you're writing fiction and you're, you're told about the show-don't-tell aesthetic, right? And my friend Garrett Hongo says the show-don't-tell aesthetic is a white boy's aesthetic. <laughs> and what he means by this, we're all taught to read from a white male perspective. We're taught to read the world as Hemingway reads it so that we can understand. And Hemingway says, I just show the surface so that you intuit all the depths underneath it, the iceberg underneath the surface. But I didn't even understand what was underneath the surface of my own experience. When I was growing up, for instance, a name would come up at a family gatherings and somebody would say, Nihonjin or Hakujin. And nobody explained to me that Nihonjin was Japanese, Hakujin was white person. And then if it was a Japanese-American, they would say, what camp were they in? And somebody would say, oh, Minidoka. And then the conversation would go on. Nobody ever explained to me, ever, nobody ever sat down to my child and said, during World War II, David, 110,000 Japanese-Americans, including our family, were rounded up out of the West Coast and put in these prisons in desolate places in the Western United States. And that's what we're referring to when we talk about the inter- what camp were they in. Let me just interrupt for one second, David. So when that was happening at the table, did you say, what is that? What camp? Or was the culture of your family such that you knew you don't ask? I didn't have enough context to even ask the question. I had a friend who said, I thought they were like summer camps until I read about it in high school. So there really wasn't any talk about the past. So it was just this word camps. I mean, who knows what what that was. So I felt like I had to write the memoirs to investigate that past and investigate how my parents' character and identities were formed in part because of that experience of being interned and therefore how they raised me. My friend Chris Abani has characterized my work as being the conjunction of 
biology, by which he meant he says he means race, and history, and how those produce psychology. So it's how race and history produces psychology. And so I was doing those in memoir, but at a certain point my friend Alex asked me to be in a series of performance pieces by men of color. And at first I didn't want to do it because I'm an introvert and I didn't necessarily like giving public readings or being on stage. But if I wasn't in the series, there wasn't going to be an Asian American in the series. And once I started working with the form of performance, all sorts of other voices came out. I started doing characters. I started doing sort of SNL-type stuff where this was during the time when people were threatened by Japan. So I took over a news studio and started changing everything in, in, in the newsroom to reflect Japanese elements. I was selling picture brides from Asia, offering two Ginsu knives. And I had been trained as a poet in a very traditional manner. And a lot of my poems had some sort of form or written, written the noose playing first. And it was hard for me to break out of a certain literary voice. And once I got to performance, suddenly I could access a colloquial voice, a speech-like voice. And suddenly all sorts of other content and emotion began to come out. The Oriental Thug. Yes, yes. I saw a YouTube video of you doing the Oriental Thug, and it was, I thought it was wonderful. But what was so interesting was the way your voice absolutely changed. Mm -hmm. And of course, the language did. But physically, you can just see this transformation happen. It's a different <laughs> stance. This is a little performance piece that I do. Uh, it's called The Oriental Thug. And it's, it's about a kung fu guy who comes over from uh, Hong Kong to do Kung Fu in America. Yeah, that's right. You've seen me before. I'm the Oriental Thug. Got a black belt in karate, Aikido studying under a descendant of a Shaolin master. I can break boards, concrete bricks, blocks of ice. I can throw a bladed star from 20 feet and slit open your nose. Do backflips, frontflips, kips, iron crosses. But when I come to America, I get my ass kicked up by some middle-aged, over-the-hill white guy, like Mel Gibson or Chuck Norris or David Carradine. David Carradine! The guy's got dentures by now. His colon's as slow as the Los Angeles freeway. He lives in the senior citizen center over in Bel Air. And I'm supposed to let him pummel the crap out of me? Uh, you should have seen the director in those scenes. Oh, David, the leaves over to your right. Yeah, just a little further, David. Uh, can you see him? Can you hear me? Da David, put in your hearing aid. <laughs> I, I know, I don't have to shout. Okay, let's do a leg kick now, David. David, you have to lift your leg off the ground. Yeah. David Carney, blowing me away. You know, that's like Muhammad Ali getting knocked from the ring by Mr. Zulu. Yes, I, that happened. The, the first show I did with, and the show I did with Alex, I played an Asian-American DJ. And suddenly the voice, whoa, 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 it's the blue of midnight, it's out of sight, and, you know. <laughs> so this whole other voice came out, and, and people knew me went, where, where did that come from? And I often do this with my students now, is I have them do performance pieces, and you'll get these very sort of quiet, introverted people, as writers often are, and if you give them the venue of an exercise where they have to access something performance and they're talking to an audience, a whole other side of their personality comes out. 
a whole other voice comes out. And that voice allows them to access areas of their own psyche and experience that they couldn't before because they have this preconceived idea of what literary language is. And you've also written a novel. Yes. Finally, after I wrote my two memoirs, I felt like I understood enough about Japanese-American experience to actually write a novel about it. And that's famous... Famous Suicides of the Japanese Empire. And there is a famous uh, Japanese-American novel called Nono Boy. The Japanese-Americans were asked two questions. They were given a whole loyalty questionnaire when they were in the internment camps. And one of the questions was, do you forswear allegiance to the emperor and swear allegiance to the United States? And do you agree to serve in the armed forces? Certain people answered no to the first question because they said, I I never had allegiance to the emperor in the first place. Some people answered no out of protest to their internment. And these people who answered no, no to these questions were called no-no boys. And one of them said, I would love to fight for America, but to do that, I have to be a citizen. And if I'm a citizen, why haven't I been granted the right writ of habeas corpus? Why haven't I been given a trial? Why have I been in prison with no formal proceedings at all to determine my innocence or guilt? And... During the war, Japanese-Americans disagreed about how to deal with the government's interning them. Some people felt like they should go along with everything the government did. They should join the armed forces to prove that they were good patriots. And some people said, no, as a citizen, I should have the rights of a citizen. And after the war, the heroes of the community became the men who fought in World War II. The Japanese-American units were among the most decorated units in in Europe. And the black sheep of the community were the Nono Boys. The famous Japanese-American novel is called Nono Boy, which is about a Nono Boy. And I wanted to write a novel about a son of a Nono Boy. And I I knew someone whose father was a Nono Boy, and so that became a sort of basis of writing this novel and how this Japanese-American grows up being separated from the Japanese-American community and his family being separated from the Japanese-American community, but he doesn't know why this is happening. His parents don't talk about it. His parents don't say, your father was a draft resistor, but it's there as a presence in the household. And eventually, this isn't giving too much away from the novel, his father eventually commits suicide. That happens pretty early on. Ben, who's the protagonist of the novel, is writing the Forever Dissertation, which I know something about. And what you do in the book is you actually weave parts of that dissertation in so the reader gets a sense of the context in which this is all set. Yes, he's writing a book called The Famous Suicides of the Japanese Empire, which are all about famous Japanese suicides. But as he's doing it, part of him realizes all this is really displacement and that he's really both trying to deal with and not trying to deal with the fact that his father committed suicide. And then eventually his brother also disappears under mysterious circumstances, which can be read either as suicide or not. So it also became a way of, oftentimes with Japanese Americans or a lot of ethnic Americans, people get confused about ethnicity and race. For instance, people will often assume that I have a greater relationship to Japanese culture than I actually do. 
I mean, Ben does not really grow up knowing much about Japanese culture like I did. But his being Japanese-American and the way that his family was raced during World War II, in other words, it was the race that marked them as the enemy. It was a race that separated them from other American citizens in terms of what they could expect for their constitutional rights. And so that is a different category of thought, of ontology, than the whole issue of ethnicity. Yeah, you said, and I can't remember where I read it, but that you grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in Chicago and knew more about Yiddish, knew more Yiddish than Japanese. No, and I knew more about the Holocaust than I knew about the internment of Japanese Americans. Your memoirs, and and even your novel to a certain extent, they're serious books, and yet there are moments that, that are very funny, and mm. it's like seriously funny, mm-hmm. and that, that's hard to juggle, I think. Well, I, I think, where does humor come from? Humor comes from either repressed anger or repressed pain, I think. And I think about how my friend Juno Diaz says, you can't get through a third world childhood without some sense of humor, otherwise you just... You, you don't survive, and so you have to le- learn to laugh at painful things in order to get through it. And then I think it's, it's just the absurdity of being going through human experience. I also feel like one of the things I learned from doing the performance pieces is if I had a tremendously comic monologue, that if I did a serious poem after the comic monologue, people would hear it better, both of them, because it would be this contrast in tones. Whereas if I read poems that were just one tone, after a while, the audience just gets lulled. And that, that's something which is people who write for the stage understand. But oftentimes, I don't think poets understand. You've also done a lot of work about the representation of Japanese Americans and Asian Americans in general mm-hmm. in film, mm-hmm. mostly on television yes. most particularly. And... That has to inform your performance pieces as well, I would think. Yes. I mean, first of all, I think people underestimate the power of popular culture in forming images that we have of who people are racially. And there are very few three-dimensional images and, and stories about Japanese Americans or even Asian Americans, even up to this day. And you can tell a lot about the society by how you are represented. For instance, just a simple basic thing is if there is an East Asian character, they are almost always going to be in a a supporting role. They're never going to be the star. And it's no mistake that the Asian stars that we have now have come from Hong Kong and China where they've already been able to establish a stardom. Because Jet Li, I remember, when he appeared in Lethal Weapon 2, I think it was, he says, I've done 42 movies and every one I was the hero, but I come to America and I play the villain. And that was what he had to do to begin to establish himself in the American market. The series Kung Fu, which was actually thought of by Bruce Lee, they gave it to David Carradine. And that was what sent Bruce Lee to Hong Kong, and that's where he became a star, because he finally determined, I can't become a star in America. And what, what that really says is, then, 
our position as Americans is at best always tentative. You know, people want to say racist, gone. If that was the case, then everything would be cast very differently. It's what's the norm? Yeah. The norm is white. Yeah. And it's also sexual things because you're much more likely to see a white male with an Asian female Absolutely. than an Asian male with a white female. I mean, I often have discussions with African-American women because uh, about this because on the sort of sexual totem pole, Asian males and African-American women uh, really are on the bottom. And they've done studies about this in terms of like, you know, Match.com, where people mark racial preferences, right? And at the bottom are African-American women and Asian-American men. Then that is reflected in terms of the way things are cast. I think you're right when you talk about it being really kind of a hard slog to have people understand that, A, images in popular culture matter, and B, they're not accidental. Yes, yeah. People make deliberate choices about... And it's a complicated issue because one of the things Hollywood executives will say, well, Asian Americans don't go see specifically Asian things in the way that the black audience will go see specifically black films which star black people. So that's obviously true, but it is this inability constantly to really imagine the lead person being Asian American and that by virtue of just simply ability or or like you just think about all these doctor shows on TV. The only East Asian doctor that I can think of is Sandra Oh on Grey's Anatomy. Whereas if you go to an actual hospital the number of East Asian doctors is much higher. Or even just recently, they're doing Hawaii Five-0, and it's nice that they have two Asian Americans in, in the piece, but the two leads are two white guys. Let me ask you this. You have created a life that supports writing and, and performance as well. Mm. What goes into making a life that is open to creativity? Hmm. That's a good question. I I think one of the things is that I had to reevaluate my whole education. And what I mean by that is that I was educated, like a lot of Asian American kids, to get really good grades. And as I tell my students, what if you're a really good student, what do you do? You don't make any mistakes. You don't stray into an area which you don't know because it's like would I take a class in ballet if I didn't know I was going to get an A? No. You don't try to look foolish. You don't make mistakes. You don't waste time. And you don't really examine your own subjectivity or your own intuitions or your own feelings. Now, I, I think there are, there's uses, for obviously, for being good, a good student. But those rules are almost entirely the opposite of what is needed to be creative, where you ought to be able to make mistakes, ought to be able to look foolish, ought to be able to waste, seemingly waste time. You go out of your areas of expertise, you rely on your subjectivity, you, you examine your subjectivity, your intuition, and your feelings. And I really had to untrain the good student in me and begin to try to release the creative part of me. And And I often feel like it's been a sort of lifelong struggle that I'm continuing to do. Whereas some of my friends who were just bad students, they were just more naturally able to access their creative sides. 
and I don't know that I agree with this, but Einstein said imagination is more important than knowledge. I'd hate to privilege one over the other. No, what I would say is, is knowledge is important. It's like I, I did a study of scientific discoveries, and scientific discoveries come from three different qualities. One is that the person doing it has to have a background in the field. So you or I might have seen mold on bread, but we wouldn't have thought, oh, God, this might be an antibiotic and we can use it as penicillin. And then oftentimes what the person discovers is not what they set out to discover. And the third thing is that discoveries often happen by accident. So it's not planned. Now, I often talk about literary techniques to my students as ways of creating those accidents. Rhyme and form is a way of creating accidents. Because when you're thinking about sound associations, like if I, if I go uh, painting and I go grating, waiting, mating, I'm doing half rhymes here. These words come up, and they're not really logically associated necessarily with painting, but they lead me off into a different area of, of thinking about something. And to get back to the issue of imagination, so you have to have this basic knowledge, but the imagination in, in literature is, comes through language, and I think the impulse for literature comes from our need and desire to express what we know unconsciously, but we don't have the language to express. And so we have to create that language. And the creating leashes itself to our imagination. Okay, and there we'll leave it. David, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a nice conversation. That's writer and spoken word performer David Murrah. David's recently published a new collection of poetry called The Last Incantations. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. The Artworks podcast is posted each Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, poet Sheila Black. To find out how Artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.